for this morning. The scripture reading is found in Psalms 87, uh, the verses from one to four. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyra with Ethiopia. This man was born there. May the Lord add his blessings on these words. This morning's Old Testament reading comes from uh, Pew Bible, page 66, Exodus 15, 1 until 21. It's a song of Moses and Miriam. I'm going to read it, not sing it to you. I heard that collective sigh of relief. Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, his name is, uh, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariot and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them, they sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power, your right hand, Lord, has shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed at the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. Your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip, grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as, though, as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you brought pass by. You, you will bring them in, the, in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through on dry ground. Then Mary and the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. And Miriam said, Sing unto the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. Our New Testament reading is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world through his, its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of which was preached to, the, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. This morning's gospel reading is found in Luke chapter 7, 31 to 35. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I, pair, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Well, I've had such a good time, I'm ready to go home. <laughs> now I know why they call it caveman television when it refers to the fire, David. You did that well. Uh, or your brother did well. And thank you, ringers. Uh, always enjoy the bell choir. And it's good to, be, good to be with you. Our theme is freedom. And when we think about what it takes to be free, um, it, it really is more involved than first glance would indicate. When we think about freedom, at least the first things that come to my mind, trivially speaking, because I live in a country that has laws designed to protect my freedom ultimately, at least most of them, uh, because I live in a country where we have stated intentions that we have freedom surrounding speech and press, freedom surrounding religion and so forth, um, I don't have to think about a lot of things that are required when it comes to freedom. But my immediate reaction to what would it take to be free is, my first thought is I've got to win the lottery. How many of you think that thought? <laughs> I get it. You don't play the lottery. You're all Vegas people. Okay, I've got to win big at Vegas. All right, now I'm getting closer. More hands coming up there. Yeah, I always tell people I have a better chance of having a great white shark swim up my two-story house drain pipe and bite me in the behind than of winning the lottery. That's about how I figure my chances. But when I think about freedom, I think about massive amounts of money, and maybe you do too. 
because freedom helps me, it seems, at that moment. Now, all of a sudden, I'm free because I can indulge every single whim or passion I ever thought I had surrounding what that means. So I don't want to be here next weekend. I'm going to be in Paris kind of thing. You know, I'm on the Concord. Well, there is no Concord, but maybe I'll buy a retired Concord and fly myself over there. I, you know, freedom. We just start thinking of these ridiculous things. Uh, and yet we don't realize that, that these are their own entrapments, that the more stuff you own, the more it owns you, not the other way around. Um, so that's one side of freedom. The other side is we think of it in terms of power. Well, if I were rich, that usually goes together, if I were rich, I would hire a fleet of attorneys. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things you can get done with a fleet of attorneys. There's certain freedoms that you, you know, all right, maybe that's not tracking with some of you. I'm revealing a little dark fantasy life all my own, but... Um, <laughs> You can, you can decide this for yourselves. What does freedom look like for you? Probably your first take at it isn't very spiritual. Your first stab at it isn't, very, isn't really on track. At least mine wasn't. And I'm, I'm guessing that for many of you it's the same. Freedom requires a tremendous amount of responsibility, actually. It's the bottom line. And when we talk about freedom with youth, that, that kind of thinking doesn't necessarily connect, especially for our young people particularly responsibility is a burden and freedom is something you get by chucking responsibility and moving into the direction you think you want to move at the moment and that's where so many mistakes get made that have very um, ranging consequences from the very uh, minor insignificant consequences to life-altering even life-taking consequences but beyond the sense of responsibility Real freedom requires uh, wisdom. One of the things that we're tempted to look at when we think about freedom is strength. That's where my fleet of attorneys come in. You see, in today's world, I suppose in certain sectors, having an army would be strength. But for me, in the context of the United States, having a fleet of attorneys would be strength. That's like better than G.I. Joe. Some of you are nodding, you know what I mean. You know, an army can kill somebody, but an attorney can make them miserable for forever. <laughs> All right? So, you know, I, I, I just throw that out for you. Um, where am I going with this? Well, my thesis this morning is biblical, and it's based on the idea that strength is one thing, but wisdom is much more desirable. And wisdom has a much greater... Uh, correlation to true freedom and a potential to bring us to that. Let's start with our Old Testament reading in Exodus. And oh, before I forget, uh, there is, uh, you'll know immediately where this comes from, but today is what day? Bastille. Bastille Day. Good for you. It's July 14. It's French Independence Day. Our theme is freedom. We have a Rodin sculpture on the front of the bulletin. All a happy coincidence. But three cheers for liberty, three cheers for uh, all of that. So, um, for what it's worth, equality, fraternity. Our Old Testament story is about a very powerful person. In fact, the most powerful person in the world. The story is about this person's power and self-perception and the way in which this person 
had dynastically operated or at least previous dynasties had operated. There was a time when Egypt became monotheistic. They turned almost entirely to Ra, the sun god. Everything got turned over to the cult of Ra. Some historians place this at about the time of the exodus or potential exodus. And so it is thought by some that Moses may have actually been influenced in his upbringing in the court to a kind of monotheism that wasn't necessarily present in patriarchal Judaism. Okay, wasn't necessarily present. In Old Testament passages that predate the Exodus, you find references to God's plural sometimes. You find references to uh, idols and gods being worshipped apart from the living God. And you remember Exodus 20 is written not only after the uh, entire Exodus took place, but Exodus 20 is written looking back to a point in history during the time of Moses. So I'm talking about the Pharaoh who lived there. He may have already um, given up the cult of the king, but previous dynasties, Pharaoh was a, a son of the gods. In fact, Pharaoh was a god. And so this mentality had kind of been part of Israel's, I mean, excuse me, Egypt's history going into the story of today, Exodus 15. Comes a period in time when Israel visits Egypt to see if they can get food. That's Israel and his family, and I'm referring, of course, to Jacob. And when they find Joseph there, and they eat, and they are invited to stay, and because of what Joseph has done for the kingdom, they're given rich land in the Goshen area, the Nile Delta there. They become farmers and shepherds and prosper greatly and multiply tremendously. And we read briefly in Scripture that there comes a king who knows Joseph not, and we don't know for sure, but we think that's the period of the Hyksos. And they come in and take over, and the Israelis, or the, they're not Israelis, excuse me, the, the Hebrews are enslaved at that point in time. Moses is ready to take them out, and dynastic Egypt is based on slavery. Like all great empires, the fundamental labor pool is slave labor. Their economic prosperity, their wealth, comes in great part from that labor pool, this free labor pool, uh, treated uh, sorely and, and badly before the Lord. As you know the story, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Let them go to worship their God, and Pharaoh refuses. Ten plagues go by. Horrible, horrible happenings. I don't know how you feel about flies, but that one alone would have made me call uncle. I, you know, imagine flies crawling around your eyes and ears and into your nose. Imagine flies all over your baby and all over your food and all over everywhere. Imagine going to bathe in the Nile and finding and get, and get water and find that it's red colored. Imagine dead frogs all along the embankment. You're squishing on them as you go down. Imagine, imagine that hail comes and destroys all of the crops and there's going to be no food in the year to come, or very little. Imagine everything bad that can happen all in this conflict and confrontation between Pharaoh, the most powerful descendant of the God King in the, in the, in the world at the time, and a humble Hebrew 
people represented by a baby who had been adopted by royalty and had come back after murdering a man to plead for his birth people. He's back and he's making this case and Pharaoh's not going to buy it. And finally, in one terrible night in which blood was put on the lintels and doorposts and the angel of death passed over those who had done so and participated in the Passover, there's a terrible cry in Egypt for the firstborn of everything is dead. And Pharaoh finally for a moment breaks, wouldn't you? For a moment, finally he breaks. And he lets, he says, we're going to do it. We're going to let these people go. The Egyptians are so ready to do this that they just load them up with jewels and precious things and gifts and anything to stop the carnage. Get out. Go. Let's stop these curses. Let's end this now. Go. But once they're gone and Nobody's working the fields and nobody's making brick and the dishes aren't getting done and the food isn't getting cooked and things aren't happening. They have a moment's pause. What have we done? We've given away the basis of our economy. We've made a terrible mistake. Even the king, after all that he's been through, realizes he can't do this after all. He's going to have to bring him back. And so kings do what kings do. He assembles his armies. These are mighty armies. They're clad in their own kind of armor. They have the best possible swords and spears that could be manufactured in the day. They had chariots and horses. They were finely cared for and arrayed. This was a well-fed, well-trained, well-nourished, well-practiced army. Yeah, they had been through some tough times. The whole land had. But the dynasty hadn't gone down yet. Meanwhile, Moses is taking a people and led by God and there's a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day and they're they're headed out to Sinai. And God takes them to a place where it's absolutely hopeless mountains on either side the Egyptians are behind them and the sea is before them and they do what we all do we blame them we look at them and say oh they were faithless but I'm guilty we all do this get to the water's edge and go oh man now what am I going to do oh you're kidding me God You brought me out here to die in this miserable place? Could I not have died in the discomfort of my shack in Egypt? With my belly full of something anyway and water to drink? You you brought me out here that I should only be hauled back after all we've been through, this is it? Moses lifts up himself in prayer to God and says what must be done and God says spread forth your hands put your rod over the water and Moses does so and God piles up the water on either side and makes a dry path through the sea that they might pass somebody I think 
Ted Hiddle, I don't know if he's here today, sent me an email about the logistics of this, or maybe it was Edna. It, it would just, the amount of supply and the amount of, of space that would be necessary to get a million people through a path in a night is just, it, it's unbelievable. Somebody's done the calculations, it's pretty impressive. This isn't a little skinny trail, this is a wall of water that's been piled up and it's wide enough for people to pass by shoulder to shoulder or a width. They get through and they're on the other side and the Egyptian army is making its decision. They've come this far, are they done? And the order is given to pursue and they go through the path, through the sea and they're very close to the other side. They too are great in number. And the waters crash down around them and with the weight of their armor and the weight of their spears and swords, they cannot swim. And they're overwhelmed. And as the scripture says, the horse and his rider has been cast into the sea. Israel is saved. They're going to live another day. They're going to journey another day toward the place they've been promised. Now, Pharaoh did what kings do. He relied on might. He relied on strength. He played with power. Have any of you seen any of those contemporary like gun shows on TV? Those, uh, these guys who uh, play with uh, 50 caliber stuff and make cannons and do all this bizarre stuff. Have any of you seen some of those fun shows? Take a minute and watch five minutes of one sometime. It's amazing with a 30 caliber machine gun how quickly a car vaporizes. It just turns to nothing. All right? If you've ever watched a, a film with tanks rolling over stuff, it turns a car into a crushed tin can in about three seconds flat. Power. Tremendous power. The firepower of our military. It's, it's frightening. It's unbelievable. Egypt was the same in its day. It was that great. It was that kind of power in its day. And God said, I'm not going to play this way. Moses, I want you to take a stick. And because I'm with you and because I will do the work and because I will be your God and you will be my people and because I will save you, I want you to raise this stick. Yes. And God blows with this breath, this spirit that has enlivened all of us and the waters part. The wind and the waves in Jesus' day obey him, right? The sea obeys God's command. He doesn't have to flex a muscle. He only has to speak. And I don't even know that he has to do that. And it's over. A people's delivered, it's done. My thesis is that wisdom is greater than strength. Which should bring us to the passage, I think it's John that I had you uh, read. Luke 7. Sorry about that. 
Luke 7. Jesus is doing a different kind of battle. Thirty-one to thirty-five. Let's back it up so that we know the context of the story. Let's back it up, if we will, to um, twenty-one. Luke seven twenty-one. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers that had come from John who had said in verse 20, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? He replied, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. I will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what, then, can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus says? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John came neither eating nor drinking, eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all of her children. You know, Jesus had been accused he had been accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, one who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and didn't know the company he kept. And he makes this very interesting point out of wisdom. He's not trapped either by John's messengers or by the Pharisees or Sadducees. He's not trapped into either conceding anything that doesn't need to be conceding, nor is he trapped into capitulating He's not trapped into saying something that will be used against him. He simply uses wisdom. He says those who can hear in the prophet's words, the prophetic word, have already been baptized by the prophet. And they recognize because of that what it is that I've brought. But those who don't see the prophet don't see me. How can I compare? We played the flute for you. A cheerful tune, and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral dirge, and you were not moved to tears. John came, abstaining, and you said he had a demon. 
I come eating and drinking, and you accuse me of being a glutton and a drunkard and a sinner. Let me tell you how it is. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. This little showdown doesn't require special strength. This little showdown doesn't require any kind of uh, physical conflict or confrontation. Jesus simply makes the point. Wisdom, what does that mean anyway, is proved right by all of her children. Have you ever heard the phrase, proof is in the pudding? Or is that too old? Okay, any of the older people here heard of proof is in the pudding? Of course. What does that phrase mean? You ever heard the words of Jesus, by their fruits you shall know them? What does that mean? By your fruits you will be known is the same phrase as wisdom is proved right by all her children. I like what Jesus does with this. I like what he does in wisdom in all of his conflicts and confrontations. He doesn't resort to strength, although he stands in strength. He resorts to wisdom, and it keeps him free. It keeps him above and out of this fray in a very real and powerful and admirable kind of way. Look, truth is, I can't win with you. If I abstain, like John does, I have a demon. If I eat and drink like I do, you say I'm a drunkard and a glutton. So what am I to do? Let the miracles that I work, let the words that I speak, let the people that I influence, let the legacy I share in in the prophetic word of John the Baptist, let that prove to you what needs to be proven. We don't talk about the work of the Pharisees and the Sadducees these days. We talk about the word and work of Jesus. We don't talk about the miracles of the Sanhedrin. We talk about the miracles of Jesus. We don't talk about the salvation that's come by works or a stale or dead religion that denies the spirit. We talk about a religion that comes to us as life in the living person of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God. It's very, very different. Last passage, and I won't take a lot of time because I've used up our time, is in 1 Corinthians. I suppose this could be a sermon all of its own. But I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. Christ chose the cross to demonstrate God's wisdom, which was an anathema. The cross represented brutality and shame. It represented guilt. It represented everything undesirable and accursed for the Roman and the Jew. 
For the Greek, the idea that a god would submit to this kind of torture was foolishness. It was not what any of their gods would ever do. Their gods were too busy uh, having affairs and creating other sub-gods and making a mess of the universe. Is that too flippant a dismissal of Greek mythology? Probably. Well, there's some of that in there anyway, right? At the end of the day, what's happening here is what appears to be foolishness to us all, what is a stumbling block because it's so outrageous, depending on our point of view. As God embraces the way of the cross as a demonstration of his wisdom, and in this horrible submission, ends up creating the greatest freedom that you and I could hope to have. Because whatever else can be said, God's wisdom makes us free in this, in this. We were dead in sin, slaves to sin, unable to change that reality. And Christ bonded us and made us free. He gave himself as the ransom. He gave himself as the example. He gave himself as sin for us and died this miserable, anticlimactic, horrible death because the wisdom of God spoke and the wisdom of God knew and the wisdom of God made us free. Wisdom is greater than strength. And if we listen to the wisdom of God, it's going to make us free, even freer than we are. I would say it's going to make us increasingly free. And so I hope we'll pay attention to that. I hope we'll give this wisdom of God time to grow and develop in our lives. That when he brings us to the impossible place, we learn to know that if he's brought us there, he has a purpose and he'll fulfill it. So that we can know if we've been trapped in a no-win, that he'll say it as he sees it. The proof is in the pudding. Wisdom is proved right by all of her children. That at the end of the day, what we perceive to be a loss in Calvary initially is the most glorious of gains. For God's wisdom has saved us. Almighty ruler, be our vision and be our wisdom. For we would be yours, the Lord of all. Amen.